Hey there! Welcome to Culture by Culture, a multidimensional exploration of Black and Asian pop cultural ties. I'm your aspiring musical historian host, Delia, and today I'm joined by author and music and cultural critic, Jeff Chang. Hi there! Go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about what you do. Hi, Delia. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm a writer, and I've done a bunch of different books. My first book was Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip-Hop Generation. And yeah, I've just, I've been doing the thing for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I you're actually pretty, I think, prolific. You've written a lot. I think writer is almost like an understatement. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm actually pretty slow. I mean, my you know, the books, okay. there's a big break between a lot of the books and... Yeah, I'm just I'm not my editors know that I'm not the the fastest tortoise on the mm. on the track. But yeah, there's times like now where there there just is so much that's happening that needs to be yeah. written about and so I'm I'm out there right now just cuz there's mm-hmm. a lot to do. There's a lot of work to do. Yeah, there is a lot of work to do. There mm-hmm. is so much happening right now. It it sometimes feels feels like too much like it, all this can't really be happening all at one time, but it is. It is. <laughs> mm, totally agree with you. Well, I'm very happy to have you on the show today. As people know from previous episodes, I'm not the most uh, hip-hop aficionado, I wouldn't say. (laughs) Um, I am also very young in the scope of the history of hip-hop. So I really like getting people on who have that background to talk about it because I think it's very interesting. Like I said, this is a pop culture podcast that covers specifically the interactions between Black and Asian pop culture. And we do cover a lot of Black nerds, black weebs who love anime or like Korean pop culture or Bollywood, things like that. But there's the flip side, right? Like there is a pretty, I would say, long history between our cultures interacting over hip hop, which I think is super fascinating when you think of the cultural context in which hip hop was created and all of that stuff. Before we jump into that, I just was curious, you know, what drew you to hip hop as a fan? I was, you know, a kid growing up on this little island in the middle Pacific. I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, and mm-hmm. I um, I was just really into music from a young age. I uh, loved listening to AM radio <laughs> back when AM, AM radio was a thing. That's how old I am. And, um, <laughs> you know, just as I got older, I was like, oh, there's FM radio too. Wow. And, you know, the, <laughs> the radio station, the FM radio stations are freeform. And they were beginning to play a lot of reggae music, actually, from Jamaica. Uh-huh. So I, I tune into this FM station on the slopes of Haleakala and on Maui, upcountry. And they would play Peter Tosh and Bob Marley. And I'm like, wow, what is this stuff? So I feel like I had a pretty good foundation for when Rapper's Delight comes along. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm a little older now. And all the kids at school are trying to learn the lyrics to it. But um, I knew that there was something that was deeper than just sort of this, you know, this funny rhyme about kids kind of having fun and making up kind of silly rhymes and stuff. And Mm -hmm. at at the dinner and the the chicken tastes like wood or whatever. It was something that quickly out of that, there were a bunch of movies that came out. Mm -hmm. So for kids growing up in the middle of the Pacific, seeing these kids in new york city which was to us like the far east you know what i mean i was like that was like wow what are these kids doing man look at look, look at look at them you know they're they've got their own walk they've got their own talk they've got their own swagger mm-hmm. they're making their own music they're making their own visual art and i was just like swept up into it as was an entire you know 
generation of mm -hmm. kids all around the world, you know, kids in Japan, right? Mm -hmm. Kids in Korea. And that's like the root of it for me was that moment when hip hop went global. So from that, you know, I, I just started getting into the whole thing. I couldn't never dance very well. I didn't have <laughs> enough money to buy turntables or that kind of thing. I really got into graffiti art because that was fairly inexpensive oh, so and I was visually mm -hmm. oriented. And then when I moved to California, I got dropped into the middle of the Bay Area hip hop independent rap scene at that time, which was just blowing up and uh, got all into it and just really absorbed it. And then kind of the rest is history from there. That's awesome. Yeah. I think a lot of, let me rephrase, I would say a lot of people my age, maybe and definitely younger, we weren't there. It feels like, you know, hip hop is just kind of a foregone conclusion because it's been around our whole lives, my whole life. And I think it's easy to forget just how much of a moment when hip hop went global, like what that was like and how it wasn't, you know, the, the origins feel insular, I think, when you learn about hip hop history. Insular in that, like, you know, it starts in these communities and then spreads outward, I mean. But once it hits the scene, like, it becomes global really fast and takes the global pop culture by storm. Would you say that is a correct interpretation from my <laughs> young millennial no, totally. um, perspective? <laughs> yeah, no, I think you nailed it. I, You know, the, the thing that's interesting to me is here we are still talking about it, right? Like, Right. 50 years after the sort of Big Bang in the Bronx. And I just think it's this thing that's in Black freedom culture that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. allows the people to be able to see a way to be able to communicate their stories as well. Black freedom culture has this leveling up effect where it says, you know, we're looking at things from the point of view of our culture and our place and our needing to piece back together what has been ripped away from us by mm -hmm. the middle passage by racism slavery yeah. segregation and exclusion and so if we've got a vision of freedom it's going to include everybody and i think that that's something that you feel it in the culture before you know it i feel like you know when we were kids like rapping rapper's delight in the school hallways of this high school in Honolulu, Hawaii, right? It's like, mm -hmm. in some ways, that's like the meme, that's like the virus, as Ishmael Reed kind of puts <laughs> it in mumbo jumbo that infects us. And if we follow it through, then we're like, wow, there's the seeds of personal and, and collective liberation for all of us. So anyway, I'm getting really metaphysical here, but it's sort <laughs> of something that starts in the Bronx, it spreads to Black communities all across the U.S. who are like, I recognize that. That's part of mm -hmm. like the tradition. That's part of the orality, you know, of things. It feels right, and it also explains and speaks to like what I'm living through. But as it spreads beyond Black communities into the 1980s, into this particular period, you know, like no matter how much they try to commercialize it, that's that pure root, that pure stream, if you will, mm -hmm. that I. Th I think a lot of people are still now, 50 years later, like tapping into. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about spreading, you know, to other communities from Black communities, I know growing up for me, I can only speak from my personal experience. You know, there's a lot of conversation about what is really hip hop, who can participate in hip hop. And there's a lot of those conversations. And I think it comes from sometimes valid places of, you know, worried about the diluting of the culture or the essence, I suppose. But I do wonder if there's just things that are misunderstood 
especially for my generation and younger, because, you know, we weren't there at the like origins of hip hop, perhaps. But is it that, you know, there's something that is often misunderstood about Asian Americans presence or Asian American fan presence in hip hop? I mean, I think the fan presence thing is pretty simple. It's like, this is banging music. This is incredible art. This is like amazing Mm -hmm. poetry. You know, this is like brilliant dance, you know, like whose soul doesn't leap when you like see that or hear that or feel that, you know? Yeah. So I think it's pretty simple. I think that post Black Lives Matter, we've had this amazing and really, really important recalibration about questions of cultural justice, but it's Mm -hmm. not often framed in terms of cultural justice, which is recognizing the importance of people's ability to be able to express themselves and also grow with that culture, right? So mm-hmm. again, very abstract, but let me get down to like real brass tacks. Like, yes, all, please. Uh, yes, all of the pioneers, right? DJ Cool Herc, uh, mm-hmm. all these, all the DJs and that kind of stuff. They'll often say, well, hip hop's for everybody, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't mean that it's like here to be exploited like a piece of land, right? Mm-hmm. Like a piece of property. It means that it's there for everybody to be able to participate in. Like the central image of hip hop is that of the cipher, right? The circle, right? Like yeah, you get in the circle, you show and prove, right? You tell your story. If people are into it, then they'll give you your props. They'll give you your love and, and the cipher grows, right? If not, it's like, come back next week, <laughs> you know, like just <laughs> try again, <laughs> try again, keep on trying, you know, but it's there. It's for everybody to be able to kind of do that. That's what they meant, mm-hmm. I think. But, you know, I think after the racial reckoning, which are, of course, still in and will be in, what folks are understanding is that culture has been expropriated. And when I say expropriated, I mean like people have taken it, they've treated it as if we're a piece of property, they've milked it of all the money that they can get out of it, you know, and then they've erased the originators of that. And that's not Mm -hmm. what the pioneers of hip hop were talking about when they said hip hop's Mm -hmm. for everybody. So the thing is, is that we haven't had the right language to be able to kind of talk about what it means to be able to have exchange and what it means to be exploited. I think- In capitalism and racial capitalism, like exchange equals exploitation, you know, but I think that what the pioneers of hip hop and the progenitors of black freedom culture throughout the decades, um, you know, the pioneers of all kinds of cultures of freedom cultures all around the world have have always been about is that, you know, it's about the exchange. It's about the growing. It's about the communication that we have. It's about the transformation that we make of each other through that communication. So oftentimes what we'll say is, this is my culture. You Mm -hmm. can't participate in it. I'm going to put a fence around this property. This is my property. Right. But that's just falling into the logic of extraction and exploitation, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, I try to tell folks, and especially like when I've been a teacher with younger folks and that kind of thing, I'm like, the beauty is in the exchange and the transformation. If we can hold that, right, and move away from the logic of exploitation and extraction and putting a fence around our work, you know, the work that we've inherited Mm -hmm. and the work that we're pushing forward and the work that's still transforming and expanding as the cipher grows, right? Yeah. If we can find that model and lean into that model and speak in that kind of language, then we're much better off. But there's a confusion, I think. And I think that that's why there's people say, you know, I'm going to protect this. This is mine. Mm -hmm. This is where I came from. 
look, man, like K-pop, J-pop, you know, Kento pop, like it was all influenced by black music. Oh, for it sure. was yeah. all influenced by well, it was influenced by American music because of hegemony and racial mm-hmm. capitalism. But it's black music. American music is black music. Like, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. That's it. There's no like other explanation. People are never going to convince me otherwise. American music is black music, and so the strands of K-pop come out of an interaction that you know South Koreans had. In the context of war, right? You're talking mm-hmm. about like Taiwan, and you're talking about the U.S. bases in Korea, right? And these are the places where the nightclubs are playing the music, and there's imbalances of power between the genders, between the races that's going on, and that kind of stuff. But the, there's the exchange that's happening with the music, and that music becomes. I mean, they tried to ban it in Korea and South Korea during the dictatorship right. because they understood that black music was freedom music. Yeah. And that it would like unleash folks. And that's exactly what happens is when you, you know, you start seeing the revolutions happening, that's the music that they're playing. And so it makes sense that the next generation would come back to that music, that they would start b-boying, that they would start, mm-hmm. you know, mixing that into their pop music and that kind of stuff. And then that that would become what we're seeing now as K-pop. So I think, you know, when we look at it as that exchange, right, that's coming out of this really fraught situation, you got black servicemen, you know, in the Pacific, because that's essentially how the army runs. Mm-hmm. And yes. you have, right. And you have these countries that have been colonized for years and years, and people are trying to find a way to communicate and the music comes along and that's where they can bond. And that's where it's coming from. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we could talk about martial arts and Bruce Lee and which is the book I'm doing now, like in all of those kinds of exchanges, that's where it all comes from. If we take it back to the root, then we can get back to the heart of the exchange and get out of the logic of exploitation. I do think there is a hesitancy to have nuanced conversations online. I think that's maybe an understatement, actually. (laughs) 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 But I think that's partly what's so challenging is that these are conversations, interactions when you're talking about true cultural exchange, not cultural exchange that is dictated by the framework of capitalism, which I think pushes us all into and indoctrinates us into a scarcity mindset. I think that's really kind of the root of the problem. Like there's not enough. So I must, like you were saying, put these fences up when that's just not the case. There's growth and transformation. That's all that can happen is growth and transformation. Capitalism teaches us we can be exploited and that we can lose things. And talking about getting back to the root of of hip hop made me think several episodes ago now, I interviewed a BTS abolitionist social media account. And we were talking about how Augusty, who is Sugar from BTS, recently-ish put out his track Hagum, which is a track completely about anti-capitalism, really calling into question like the powers that be, things like that, and how we're all like slaves to capitalism, basically, which is a big statement from somebody as big as him in Korea, which is a very hyper-capitalist society. And so you see that even at like the biggest levels, like that is a very commercial level of hip hop, I would say. And I think there is movement on the ground like that starting in all of us, why we're having these conversations, like you said, we're having a racial reckoning, if you will, and we're still having it. And I think there's other consciousness that we're coming into that is showing in our work and in our art, uh, not just hip hop, just across the board, we're seeing stories that are reflective of these struggles that have been in all of us 
that's a bit of a tangent. That's <laughs> not though. I think that's exactly the point. I mean, you know, like that sugar could be there in the heart of this hyper-capitalist mode, being mm-hmm. able to kind of put out these anti-capitalist ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a power move that Black artists have been doing, you know, for, for right. within American pop music. From, you know, Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, you know, mm-hmm. on up to Public Enemy, right? It's it's a it's a power move. And I think that these are the the modes that kind of get conveyed to people whether or not they're articulating it or not, right? They're whether or mm-hmm. not they are like aware of what it is that they're doing, like that's the mode that they've been handed, the strategy that they've been handed because mm-hmm. of their learning of mm-hmm. black freedom culture. It's yeah, it's such a powerful thing, you know. And I think it's super powerful that people are learning Black freedom culture, you know, when we're speaking, especially internationally, and they may not necessarily be aware that that's what they're learning by the time they've learned it, you know, and I think that's what has made hip hop in particular, like you said, American music is Black music. So like, we have, whether by choice or not, exported a lot of Black culture, but I think hip hop specifically has that power of communicating that message so succinctly in a way that you don't even notice you're taking it in by the time you've received the message, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, and because it's so fun and pleasurable and joyful. Yeah. Right? Like, so it's like, it's in your body. And, mm-hmm. you know, Ishmael Reed's notion of the virus that just grew virus is just so perfect. It's in your body. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you don't even know how it's in your body or that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it's there and it's not going to go away. It's going to be in there forever. And, you know, you it becomes incorporated into your body. You build up antibodies to it you, so that means that you're now in relationship with it you know in that mm-hmm. old kind of yin yang kind of way so yeah yeah <laughs> you know so it's it's pretty powerful it's a really powerful idea and i just think it's a beautiful thing for us like when we're telling and retelling the story of the beginnings of hip-hop it's the greatest story ever told Oh, it's so fascinating, especially when I started learning about the history and the origins of hip hop like years ago, comparing that to me growing up, not knowing of the history of hip hop, just it being a fact of my life, like hip hop is around. Amazing, fascinating. And I think now we see that history has gotten so complex or maybe complex isn't the word that kind of has a negative connotation rich. It is a very rich story at this point because of, like you said, it's People building on the work of the people who came before, building on that work, building on that work, and so on and so forth. And I was curious, what made you do the work in the first place for Can't Stop, Won't Stop? Like, what made you decide to sit down and, you know what, we're going to put this history to paper. I'm fascinated by this work or whatever the case was. I had been a participant. I had come of age with hip hop. And I think you get to a point where at some point it's important to kind of take stock of what it is mm-hmm. that you've learned. And so that kind of became the book, you know? Okay. The thing about the book was that part of the impetus of it was this sort of chip on my shoulder that I had with a lot of my mentors who had been mm. major, you know, organizers or, you know, those types of things during the civil rights and the Black Power movements, Third World Strike and all this other kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And, you know, the language at that time to us was always like, oh, you guys will never be with what we were. And blah, 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 blah. And I was like, times have changed a little bit. And haven't you noticed that we're all kind of like in this defensive crouch? We're fighting against this backlash. Mm -hmm. We're pitted now in these culture wars. So you made your breakthroughs, and we're thankful for that. 
but we're kind of in a different time and it doesn't help to be nostalgic. And so the book came partly from that impetus, you know? And so what I was meaning to do was try to capture the vibe and the feelings and the sort of details of not just me, but a lot of my peers Mm -hmm. in the book. That was what I was going for. I mean, you know, I never would have thought that I would still be talking about this book almost 20 years after it was first published, that we'd have another edition for another generation of folks, you know? So cool. It's really, it's, it actually has been really cool. And so it's been a journey. I mean, when I look back and when I wrote it and the things that I didn't know, I'm embarrassed (laughs) that I didn't know now, you know? We're actually heading into what might be maybe a final director's cut type of vibe edition of this to come out on the 20th anniversary in 2025 of the book. So I've been in this mode where I've been thinking a lot about like the journey of the past 20 years. I mean, Davey D and I basically were given this beautiful opportunity by Monique Patterson, my editor, Mm -hmm. to go back, reopen the book and make it available for another generation. And so we did that. And there's still so many questions about that and so many things that I I feel like I haven't been able to put into that. So yeah, this might be like a thousand page tome or something like that, you know, <laughs> come out with a director's cut, but I think the culture is ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll see. I mean, I, we'll see if the, if the press, you know, if wants to do that, but I'm excited about kind of coming back to it now in middle, middle age and, and uh, <laughs> you know, thinking about what we can put in there. I saw the book Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And I don't think I really paid attention to the date because on the one hand, 2006 was almost 20 years ago, but it does not feel like almost 20 years ago. Like, the, And it's so relevant still, which really speaks again, like we're talking about to the power of hip hop and its lasting legacy, I suppose. Mm. In talking about the history of hip hop and its legacy, specifically, I think we always talk about in more popular culture, I'm sure in like... <laughs> more like on the ground circles. This may not be true, but in popular culture, we always talk about originators. We talk about the Bronx. We've talked about Black and Latinx folks and their contributions, which rightfully so, like as the originators, like I think that gets a lot of conversation. But I've been so fascinated to learn just how long relative to hip hop's short history, the history is of Asian Americans in hip hop. And like, I'm assuming a lot of people who are listening know, at least of MC Jin. But you know, there's the history of raptivists and they're is was maybe is i'm not even sure an asian underground scene for a time and so i just wonder where asian american hip-hop artists fit in this now very complex framework of hip-hop legacy do you think yeah it's a great question you know the story really begins in the 80s as i was telling it to you you know with Mm -hmm. the globalization i should say the first kind of globalization of Mm hip-hop you know and so by the early 1980s you're seeing asians and pacific islanders and the U.S. really deep in, you know, in the culture, mm-hmm. especially visible on the West Coast, you know. So mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, they have this club called Radio, which is kind of the spot that all the young people go to. And it's it's like Korean and Filipino and Chinese and Samoan, you know, B-boys mm-hmm. up in there, you know, with everybody else, you know. There are Asian Americans who are promoters, who are working with like folks like Easy E and NWA, mm-hmm. you know, when they're still at the mixtape level, Dr. Dre is still at the mixtape level. You know, you got DJs. Wow. And of course, the DJ scene really explodes, you know, by the end of the 1980s. And mm-hmm. it comes to sort of 
Global Light in the 1990s as a group of Filipinos from South San Francisco, Daly City area, Filipino-American DJs, the Invisible Scratch Pickles, and then a bunch of mostly Filipino DJs in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, the Beat Junkies, like really start like taking national competitions and stuff. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of history. And of course, the hip hop, the rap game, you know, you're talking about artists that are are coming up in the 1980s and the 1990s, really mm-hmm. beginning to make their names. My really close friend, Lyrics Born, is one of the pioneers of that. Mm-hmm. Key Cool and Rhett Maddock, who are kind of an offshoot of the Beat Junkies. And then you have like a whole sort of underground, you know, b-boy scene too, that actually seeds the growth of b-boy and b-girl groups in Japan and South Korea. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and that, of course, takes off in a whole other kind of way when the South Korean breakers end up taking all the international competitions uh, beginning in the 2000s. So there's like this massive growth that happens and there's an amazing kind of really vibrant underground that I you know I remember being part of. And that story hasn't necessarily been told. Mm-hmm. And oh, I didn't even talk about the graffiti scene, right? Oh, for sure. Okay. Which, you know, even Honolulu becomes a major, you know, hub for graffiti art by the end mm-hmm. of the 80s. And there's all these internationally famous artists who come out of Hawaii mm-hmm. at that particular point, seed the scenes in Los Angeles and San Francisco. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that's a whole other kind of history that hasn't been told. But it's just to say that, you know, folks kind of came in because they were inspired. And all of us, I think, during that particular era, were questioned to a certain extent. Like, you know, we're questioned by, like, our folks. Like, what are you guys, you know, doing with all that Black music stuff? Whatever, whatever, (laughs) that hippity-hoppity stuff, right? And then, you know, then you're getting questioned in the ciphers, you know, like... Mm -hmm battle raps and that kind of thing that's why Jin comes up through the battle rap scene mm-hmm. it's like he's earning his way through it mm-hmm. in a way that feels right to the culture and folks wouldn't have wanted it any other kind of way so you know and the dj scene same thing right like they earned it mm-hmm. they won the competitions you know they had to be disqualified from the competitions the scratch pickles because they were winning it every year. They're like, guys, <laughs> we're just putting you out. You know, we're we're graduating to emeritus status because you guys are just <laughs> winning it every year. And then, you know, there's the whole hip-hop journalist crew, right? Mm-hmm. One of whom now has won a Pulitzer Prize, like Hua Su. Like, he came out of oh, yeah. the mm-hmm. same, you know, kind of Asian-American, Pacific Islander, like, hip-hop journalism mm-hmm. underground that we all kind of came out of. I think it's really interesting just to hear how storied these histories are especially when you consider like that's you know zooming into like the asian american experience in hip-hop but like hip-hop being so big as it is now it's just i feel like we're starting to get to where like academia is like understanding hip-hop for the art that it is like obviously there's always been these people doing this work there are people who study this and stuff but like in larger academic circles like it's not as well studied or well understood and the history gets more and more rich and complex in lovely ways but i just don't know how we're supposed to keep track of all of it if the american i'm specifically calling the american like culture and academics who do this work still don't understand or respect hip-hop for the cultural art form that it is. I get stressed out about that sometimes when I have these conversations and I'm learning things myself. A lot of it still, so much of it is still just 
word of mouth and like stories we tell each other, which is so often the case for the histories and pop culture of marginalized people. Mm. Well, you're doing it right now. You know, like I, th- the thing about it is the Academy is a weird thing, right? Like the Academy is important because, you know, that's one of the places that we store a lot of our knowledge and our our histories. But, you know, mm-hmm. the thing that I've come to kind of come to see having been in the Academy for <laughs> however long, not anymore, is that, you know, the stories and, and that kind of thing will continue as long as there's mm-hmm. people to be able to continue telling the stories. Mm-hmm. So those are people like you and me, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I you know, I'm not going to rely upon some PhD who was indoctrinated in a particular kind of discipline to be able That's to, true. right, yeah. to, to actually be able to see it and get it right and be able mm-hmm. to tell what needs to be told. They have so much work that they have to do just to justify being there in that discipline, mm-hmm. which has been shaped by Western kind of notions of knowledge, yes, right? Gathering <laughs> and knowledge production and knowledge passing on that. Yeah, it's us, man. It's you and I. <laughs> it's and and the, we gotta and, do the, the work. and the large number of people who are out there who do this. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it's always been. I mean, the thing that you know, the people were like, oh, "Your book was so groundbreaking," blah 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 blah. No, it wasn't. It, I, all I did was what you do, and what other folks who are accountable to their communities do is they just went mm-hmm. to the people in the communities who knew and mm-hmm. begged for permission to you know, to be able to retell these stories. Mm-hmm. That's essentially a lot of what I did was just to go to folks and be like, please tell me your story and please let me tell your story. And it's a different kind of idea of documentation and journalism, whatever the terminology you want to use. Like mm-hmm. for us, right, it's always been about just knowledge keeping and knowledge passing. That's kind of the thing that I've gotten to like after all of these years of navigating within these other types of circles. It's our job to do. And there's different mores, there's different protocols that you have to go through mm-hmm. to to be able to do it. And and we have to navigate that. But at the end of the day, like the knowledge is survive. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that we can count on. Like the knowledge is even under colonialism, even under slavery, even under pressure mm-hmm. in the moment with all these laws passing and that kind of stuff, like they survive. So mm-hmm. take heart, have hope, all of that kind of <laughs> happy stuff. You know what I mean? Like you're doing it. You're doing it. And <laughs> well, thank it's you. It's super important. Yeah. You putting it that way really reminded me of, we have NAMAC here, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. And I read, I'm pretty sure this is where I read it. Lonnie Bunch, who was the director, the inaugural director, and now he's the like head of the Smithsonian. But he talked about the process of getting the artifacts and getting the stuff to fill the museum. Whereas in other museums, you know, you, there's very known like <laughs> avenues to get the artifacts and stuff. But when it came to making a museum dedicated to the national history of the African-American, it was a lot of going to somebody who knew somebody's grandma who in their attic had such and such. And so you're very right. The stories survive. The stories wait to be told. And so it's just our job to tell them. I mean, it's really that image of the seed being planted, right? Or, or again, like just going back, the virus, right? Like, like it's yeah. there. It's uh-huh. there. Under certain conditions, it'll flower, you know? And that's the beautiful thing about it is like to think about, man, you know, the times that we were coming up and people were like, oh, hip hop, it's just a fad, you know? That's <laughs> so funny to think of now. <laughs> right? It's bizarre, yeah. right? But it's true, you know? And I think too, 
for me, it's come around full circle personally because, you know, I grew up of Native Hawaiian descent, but I really didn't know my Native Hawaiian culture. Mm-hmm. And now I get to see my nephews and nieces speaking Olelo Hawaii in like Ooh. fluently. You know, mm-hmm. I was like the last generation under which Olelo Hawaii have been deprecated. You know, it was mm-hmm. banned literally at the beginning of the century. So even though my great grandparents spoke it fluently, like my grandparents mm-hmm. did not, you know? Yeah. And everybody since, you know, now all of us on my mom's side of the family, a lot of us are going back to our roots and we get to see our nieces and nephews and they speak it and we're like, wow, like that's so neat. You know? And that's the yeah. thing is that it's been there. People have preserved it. And so to be able to tap into that now, me coming back at it like mm-hmm. a child, literally, like we we're in class last week and our, our our Kumo, our teacher, is like, oh, this is the stuff that I teach to my first graders. You know what I mean? <laughs> and all of us in the class are like middle-aged to like, you know, people in their 70s and 80s. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But this is like knowledge that everybody's hungry for. And we just come back to the well every week to quench our thirst, you know? Mm-hmm. So today, anyway, I'm feeling pretty optimistic. <laughs> I love that. I love, thank yeah. you for sharing your optimism because I'm sure yeah. it's very easy to get, you know, sucked into the negativity because there's plenty to go around. There's no shortage of that. No uh, so doubt. to be able to find those silver linings is, I think, really helpful. So thanks for sharing that. <laughs> Did you know Culture by Culture is on Patreon? As of right now, I'm a one woman operation. So your support would help me keep the proverbial podcast lights on, allow me to explore more of these pop cultural ties in real life, and free up some of my time to pursue even bigger ideas for the show. There's some very cool perks to get you more involved in the podcast, including a one-time shout out in an episode. So if you like what I'm doing here on the podcast and want more content, or maybe you just want to lend your support, you can click the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash culturexpodcast. You know, we're talking about hip hop and how it spread. It became a global phenomenon multiple times over. It's influenced music that is so many times removed at this point from hip hop's origins, but it's still out there doing the influencing. And not just hip hop, there's R&B, there's jazz, there's a lot of other Black musical traditions that are also influencing the world over. So I was wondering, did you have any thoughts about how we should analyze hip hop and hip hop influences in an international context? Like what's productive, what's reductive? Because I think, in my opinion, partly as a K-pop fan, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of, you know, reductive conversations that happen because, you know, you've got to look at the history like you were talking about, you know, of GIs over in Korea and how we got here. But not just speaking of Korea, like internationally, hip hop has spread. So how do you think we best analyze that in those contexts? Well, uh, there's so much there, right? So in part, like there's trying to understand how hegemony and American racial capitalism gets exported. Mm -hmm. You know, so one of the things that we did in this book, Davey D and I, in this sort of young adult edition was we included a whole chapter on the globalization of hip hop. Mm -hmm. And you know, Dave had this moment where he went to Kenya. Gosh, I want to say, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or something like that, maybe more than that. He went to Kenya and he's like, oh, I'm going to go out and meet all the hip hop folks there. Because his notion was, let me go to the different places. And this has been my notion too. Hip hop's mm-hmm. invited me to places all around the world. And that's been such a blessing mm-hmm. to be able to see these underground movements that are maintained by literally the sweat and passion of young people 
and post young people too. But you know, like people who are just like so deep into it because it's opened them up, right?、Mm-hmm. And so the poetry circles that they create, or the after-school programs that they create, or the sort of beautiful mural-making type of things that they create, like all of these different types of things, those are the places where like Dave and I would go and we'd feel right at home. Like、mm-hmm. we don't understand a language necessarily. But because we have hip hop, we're having that exchange, right? So we're beginning、mm-hmm. to have that exchange. But Dave goes to Kenya in I want to say the mid two thousands, and this is sort of the height of hip hop's hegemony, right, all、mm-hmm. around the world. And what he's finding is the politically radical music has been pushed off the airwaves by Fifty Cent and、mm-hmm. Eminem and other、mm-hmm. artists, right? So that's the tension that we kind of have to live with as those of us who have. Had the fortune or misfortune to be, you know, from the U.S. right? Yeah, and have grown up in this、mm-hmm. is to be able to look at the ways in which, on the one hand, Black freedom culture has taken root in all of these different types of places, from you know Belgrade, Serbia to Seoul, South Korea to Dakar,、mm-hmm. Senegal, right? To like all of these different types of places, and allow people to be able to express themselves and to fight back. You know,、mm-hmm. to resist and even to win, you know, like the Arab Spring, fueled by hip hop.、Mm-hmm. That's a story、mm-hmm. that people don't tell too often. But if it weren't for you know the Tunisian rappers calling out the authoritarian government, like、mm-hmm. the idea wouldn't have spread for、mm-hmm. a revolution. But on the other hand, looking at like okay, where you know it's like sort of tracking our waste, right?、Mm-hmm. Tracking our garbage, right? Like how is our garbage now like? Being used in Kenya to、mm-hmm. sell British cell phones, you know, or American,、yeah. you know, consumer goods, right? Or you know, Nike shoes, you know,、mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Like, what is that, and what's our responsibility in that? You know,、mm-hmm. to build ties to folks there, to be able to critique that, to be able to stop it here、mm-hmm. at the root. Those are the kinds of things that we kind of have to look at as well. That's how we kind of have learned through.、Mm-hmm. You know, trial and error, and sort of shock. You know, to try to think about these different kinds of things. So, I, you know, when you look at a dancer, you know, Korean dancer, that kind of stuff,、mm-hmm. it's not just about the moves that they're doing, and it's not just about how those moves got into their bodies and what that genealogy is, right? But it's、mm-hmm. also about the invisible structures beneath that that played a role in getting to that particular point. You know,、mm-hmm. on stage where they might be sharing that, you know, with tens of thousands of people in front of a live crowd or whatever, we have to look below the surface. I guess、mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's easy, especially with bigger musical moments like K-pop is having now. Not to diminish K-pop, I'm just saying no, right now no, no, no. Lo- the global scale is、sure. is massive、yeah. at this moment, and it's easy. To have critiques from the outside looking in, and not necessarily looking in—you don't have to be inside of it—but yeah, looking deeper and underneath and at the context of what's happening, what's informing, and what's informing these artists. Because also, I think even here you have artists that give into—I don't want to say give into—that that sounds negative, but you know the commerciality、mm-hmm. of the capitalistic empire. Like it's hard, I think, to stay true to your artistic. Sensibilities, maybe when you know we all suffer and struggle under capitalism, and you know I think sometimes our art gets hijacked by capitalism. And trying to find where we fit in that is it better to 
be the voice in the room and go along with it? Is it better to reject it? And I think those are hard conversations that are happening even internationally. Like these are things artists even internationally are thinking of. And I don't think we always consider that when we're looking at these musical moments across the sea, wherever they may be. Just like we have to make those hard decisions and wrestle with that in ourselves over here, they have to do the same over there, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think that's a very apt thing to say and a very good way to look at it. More broadly speaking, I know that a lot of people on the flip side, do see pop culture, especially hip hop, as you know a potential you know genesis of solidarity and connection. I'm kind of one of them. That's kind of the point of the podcast. Mm. But what do you think are the limitations there? Well, you know, culture is not going to stop a tank. You know, mm. so it's wow. Yeah, <laughs> as much of a believer and a advocate as I am for folks thinking, especially folks in social movements, justice movements, thinking about the importance of culture, mm-hmm. which I think is everything, you know? Mm-hmm. We don't have political change if we don't have cultural change first, because the idea has got to start somewhere. People have got to receive the idea and process it, and process it amongst a lot of other folks to believe that it's possible. Mm-hmm. As much as I believe in that, you know, at the end of the day, you're still not going to be able to do it with culture alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's part of it. You know, when I when I was younger, I was really impatient for revolution. And I thought mm-hmm. all the people who were reading books and doing literary criticism and that kind of stuff, I thought they were all wasting their time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, now I've become that dude. <laughs> <laughs> You know? Got more books on the way. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so partly I've had to justify that to my younger self. Like, Mm -hmm. why are you spending all this time like watching Bruce Lee movies? Like, what's what's up with that? Or why are you spending all this time listening to rap records? You know, what's up with that? I have to justify myself. But you know, it's at that nexus of -hmm. of things. So there's a way in which at some point, like we gotta stop the analysis and we gotta get out in the streets, you know? Mm -hmm. That's just the reality Mm -hmm. of it all. The beautiful thing, though, I think about especially music, but all forms of art and all forms of culture is that it does give people a portal to kind of imagine what a different future can look like. Mm, Yeah. You know, so in the moments, for instance, back in 1992, just after the uprising and Mm. everywhere the discourse was like, you know, Asians hate Blacks, Blacks hate Asians. Yeah. Like, no, like hip hop was actually giving us a space to beforehand mm-hmm. and after to be able to actually discuss and heal. I remember the conversations that Dave and I had, we talk about this a lot actually, before leading up to the uprisings in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. like we're really heated. We just fall into these arguments. Well, you all are this way and you all are that way and we're Mm. this way and we're that way. And it was very like, that was like a very tough time in our friendship, you Mm -hmm. know? But like, since then, we've both been on point to be able to think about like, okay, what does this actually mean? And, Mm -hmm. you know, because of my love for Dave and all my other friends and stuff like that, like, that's why like BLM is something core to me, right? Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter is core to me because I deeply believe that. And that's why for him, you know, when 
anti-Asian violence started peaking, like he was always like, man, like look out for yourself, man. Like take care of yourself. Like I got you, I got your back and stuff, you know? So it was because of hip hop that we had a portal into understanding how we might be able to actually live through that moment Mm -hmm. and then make it to the other side. And I think that that's the beauty of culture. That's so cool. I didn't realize y'all had been friends that long. That's wow. What <laughs> yeah, a <laughs> we're pretty old. We're, pr- we're <laughs> I mean, that's not what I mean. I just <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's what you picked up on, Delia. <laughs> wow, you guys are old, man. <laughs> <laughs> I totally just went like, wow, that's so you guys inspiring. Have been talking before I was born and stuff. Wow. <laughs> I did like I don't know if that part of the recording, like like video file use it for socials but when you said 1992 i did make a face like oh that's before i was <laughs> <laughs> yeah before you and bayana and yeah i mean yep. you know hadari and i go back that way that far as well and those are the kinds of conversations that we had as well so you know yeah but yeah <laughs> that's so cool though like I, it's still a very again i did not mean to call you old but it's a cool story like to know that hip-hop was there in that moment because even learning about it at my age Mm -hmm. learning about it in hindsight you know because even in the like recent aftermath at the time i was just like a baby Mm -hmm. um so you learn through about it through a particular lens and then if you dig deeper you can see the stories like that where there was still solidarity there there was still work being done and you're working against this narrative about like you were saying how blacks and asians hate each other like that was the Mm -hmm. their narrative for a long time and to some extent is still the narrative yeah and the power that hip-hop could play in forging those bonds i suppose because you know we see hip-hop as pop culture and art form and stuff but Mm -hmm. you know kind of going back to the cypher and that tradition it's community building is what it is hip-hop at the root of it builds community builds connections yeah, so that was a very cool story to me to see that, like, how it played out in your life. Um, uh-huh. I see you backtracking. <laughs> it's all good. I did. I, I'm like, oops, that was totally unintended. <laughs> well, I was going to actually ask you how your experience and your thoughts around solidarity have evolved over time, but I think you actually kind of spoke to that just now. But did you have anything to add on that point? No, just that, you know, it's more important than ever. And this is a period in which there is a lot of polarization in all kinds of different directions. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a period in which we really have to be able to listen a lot better to each other. Because the larger kind of fight is between this really white supremacist point of view of where the nation needs to go mm-hmm. and a vision of the future that's really informed deeply by the Black freedom movement and Black freedom culture mm-hmm. that take us in different directions. I mean, the central like urgency that I felt in writing my last book, We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on Race and Resegregation, was the idea that we're heading back into an era of racial exclusion and resegregation mm-hmm. at the exact moment that we're becoming the most culturally diverse nation that mm-hmm. we've ever seen on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Never, right? And so... It's pretty clear to me that if we continue to head in this white supremacist direction, that this is going to be a massive failure and there's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of bloodshed. You know, there's going to be a lot of violence. Yeah. Even more than there is right now. Mm-hmm. And so holding on to those, you know, principles of openness, of respect for diversity, of belief that we can create a multiracial democracy, all those things that are core to all of our justice movements like those are the things that we have to kind of uphold right now 
And so that requires us to listen. And if that means that we're having conversations because of hip hop or K-pop or mm-hmm. Bruce Lee and martial arts mm-hmm. or whatever, and that kind of stuff, then I'm here for it. You know, I am all about like what it means for us to be able to create a vision of a nation that's never really been right mm-hmm. the kind of langston hughes you know like what america like needs to be or what america will be mm-hmm. version of america as opposed to the other one you know <laughs> and so you know that's probably what undergirded our desire to create the may 19th project which mm-hmm. now lives at kcet.org uh, you know public station in la kcet.org and the May 19th project was basically a project that Rene Tajima Pena and I, along with a, a collective of a lot of filmmakers and creative geniuses, put together to create a bunch of short films around solidarity, beginning on the day, uh, May 19th, that Yuri Kochiyama and Malcolm X were, mm-hmm. were both born. And, you know, so we put that out into the world and seeded that out there a little bit. And we're really happy with the fact that it's been well so well received you know it's mm, i don't know however many millions and millions of of views and mm-hmm. redistributions and all that kind of stuff it's gone through by now but those are the things right that's where it has to begin it has to begin in the culture mm-hmm. so you know we can move towards this closed culture that's trying to ban books and african-american studies mm-hmm. you know and words like intersectionality mm-hmm. right and worse, right? Affirmative action, trying to resegregate education yeah. from the kindergarten all the way through the university levels. We can go to that direction or we can go in the direction of building, but we have to be mm-hmm. able to encourage people to imagine that that can happen. Mm-hmm. And I think in this particular point, the work of anybody who's working in culture is to move us to a place where everybody's like, that's the future that I want. And that's the future that I want to get engaged in building. That's our job. I mean, like, it's the same thing that Tony K. Bambara, this is something that we've been talking about a lot. We've been kind of using this a lot, but she said the role of an artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And mm-hmm. and I think that that's our job right now, mm-hmm. you know, and the revolution is creating this multiracial democracy that the world has never seen. And supporting the folks within it, not just absolutely platforming them and saying, good luck. Um. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, I sense that there's a whole other like <laughs> podcast session in that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah, that happens sometimes in these episodes. It's like, oh, that's a whole, that's a whole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> a whole yeah. conversation. I wanted just to add on a little bit to what you were saying. Something that for me personally, you know, if I had to give not advice to folks, I wouldn't say I'm in that position. But for me personally, you were talking about, you know, they're banning this, they're banning books, words critical race theory, all of that stuff. Mm, mm -hmm. What I always like to focus on in times when I'm just feeling really bogged down, one of the things I like to focus on is all of that is coming from fear. They're moving from a place of fear, Mm -hmm. which I find a bit empowering because they fear us. And I'm not saying to, you know, make them fear you more. It just means to me that we're doing something right. Mm -hmm. We're winning the war. They would not be this fearful if we weren't, you know? Mm -hmm. That's how I feel personally. So, you know, it's ridiculous and it's hard and it's a hard time to fight against all these forces that are trying to work against us. But knowing where it's coming from and why they're acting that way, I think, can allow us to take a bit of that power back. I totally agree. I I think and fear is exhausting, right? Mm -hmm. Fear is the type of thing that consumes you. It debilitates you, right? It Mm -hmm. works on your body in ways that you don't even understand. 
and it puts you into a downward spiral, you know? And so it's true. Like, we don't just have the moral high ground on this. <laughs> we have, like, the pleasure center, like, effect. So true. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yo, like, would you rather have a world with, like, K-pop and hip-hop, or would you rather have a world with, like, everybody is back to their, like, old traditional restricted roles and nobody <sighs> has any rights and freedoms? Like... It's pretty clear what most people would choose. But the thing is, is that everything is so obscured right now. Like, it's so mystified. It's very hard for people to kind of see through the fog of the culture wars right now. Mm -hmm. So in part, I think that's part of what we need to do. That's part of our job is to be able to clear the smoke out and just be mm -hmm. like, yo, party's over here. <laughs> Come join us, right? Like, yeah. It's so true, though. Have you heard the music on the right? It's not good. I'll no, say it. It's, it's really not good. <laughs> no, no. Racist, racist punk music is the worst punk music I've ever heard. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's bad. They've got, the vibes are bad over there. So. Yeah, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of hope. I think it's very interesting. You're so right to be like, the party's over here though. And I think <laughs> yeah, that yeah, might yeah. be a draw for a lot of, especially <laughs> people my age, but even younger, my sister is Gen Z. And like, mm, I'm like, I just mm -hmm. don't see people lasting long over there. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's optimistic of me, but mm -hmm. it's not, mm -hmm. it's not that attractive over there. No. I guess my last question for you mm -hmm. is what are your hopes for the future of Black and Asian connection in hip hop or just other, I don't really care for the word multiculturalism, but multicultural... Mm -hmm connection for lack of a better word you know i'm hopeful that we continue to kind of learn more of each other's struggles and stories mm -hmm. one of the things that's been really exciting about doing this bruce lee book is to really kind of understand that he only becomes a hero of the underdog after he really deeply experiences what race is in America mm -hmm. because he comes back, you know, to the U S he was born in the U S then he grew up in Hong Kong and mm -hmm. he gets sent back to the U S by his parents at the age of 18. Cause he's getting into too much trouble and he ends up in Seattle. And at that particular mm -hmm. time, racial segregation was just a thing, you know, mm -hmm. pretty much if you were a person of color, you lived in a small little area called the central district. Mm. And so Bruce is one of those folks. And his first student is a Black man named Jesse Glover, who has been beaten brutally at the age of 12 by police. Of course. And because of that, you know, goes through life saying, I need to learn self-defense mm. and wants somebody to teach him, wants like to learn the Asian martial arts. Mm-hmm. And so Bruce becomes his teacher. And I think in that exchange, Bruce is beginning to understand like what it means, you know, for Jesse to be Jesse at that particular mm -hmm. period in time, for Jesse to be a black man living in a segregated community mm -hmm. at that time. And then he meets uh, Japanese Americans who have all been through the concentration camps as well. Mm -hmm. So he learns about these kinds of things. And I think, you know, these days, we don't necessarily have that kind of racial segregation anymore for Asian Americans. Asian Americans mm -hmm. are the least segregated groups of all groups. Whites are the most segregated. Mm -hmm. Guess why, right? <laughs> and yet, you know, for us, you know, when we come out into the workplace, when we go to school, when we come out into mm -hmm. the workplace, we are in contact much more with mm -hmm. people of color than we are with white folks. 
I think, generally. Mm-hmm. And yet, all of society is telling us that we're the good guys and Black folks are the bad guys, mm-hmm. right? Where you're the model minority. <laughs> and those folks, they're just making a lot of noise and stuff and causing riots. Don't be like them. Right. Don't be like them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's like those ideologies are super deep. They're so, so deep. And they play on, you know, racist stereotypes that folks might have brought through American hegemony from the old mm-hmm. country. And the fear of falling, the fear of being like at the bottom of the totem pole. Mm-hmm. And those are the kinds of things that we, meaning us as Asians and Pacific Islanders in the U.S., have to fight our own communities around. Not fight. We have to really bring folks along. We have to yeah. pull them forward around that. But I, you know, I love that we have these spaces where things can get fluid and fun, right? And I think mm-hmm. that that like culture is the place where that counter programming happens, you know, mm-hmm. where people unlearn racism, where people unlearn white supremacy, you know, and in turn, you know, I think it's been that place, you know, for Black folks too, in terms of learning about, you know, Asian Americans, about Pacific Islanders and our struggles as well. So I'm still high on this and I, I'm still, you know, pretty optimistic that we'll be able to pull through all of this despite like mm-hmm. the moment that we're in right now. Yeah, I sure hope so. Mm. You were talking about the work that Bruce Lee did and what it means. I'm so fascinated with how his work spread and like brought martial arts to the black community, not, you know, necessarily directly. It's not one to one, but like that spread during that time period and what he represented to the black and Latinx community, too. It was these city kids. I spoke to my dad in my first episode. Listeners are probably so tired of me referencing this, but that's what he talks about. Like that was his first time ever really even seeing an Asian person was seeing the Hong Mm -hmm. Kong films, seeing the Bruce Lee films and how that not that he thought anything actively negatively. He just grew up in the segregated south like he just didn't have any context and that was the first time through pop culture that he was able to be like oh you know maybe what the white people always talk about asian people are is not necessarily correct because he had no frame of reference otherwise so i definitely agree about the power of you know pop culture because it lets you step outside of the community you're in because we can't always help the community we're from like you know you may not grow up around black people asian americans gay people trans people whatever in your small town or wherever and yeah so i think it's very important and something you can see happen in real time (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's a beautiful thing and the fact that your father was able to even see kung fu movies is because of segregation right it's because Mm -hmm. The Kung Fu movies, the black exploitation movies, they all played in the same theaters, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. in the cities, so that they actually had to put it on TV for white audiences to be able to get it. And then that happens later in the 80s. But it's a beautiful thing. You know, like the last thing image that I always have is that I got to interview Riza on the stage of the Asian Art Museum here in San Francisco. So and cool. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. And I was like, dang, man, like, here's a guy who grew up in New York City what we thought was mm-hmm. the Far East. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's like watching, you know, Kung Fu movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm growing up in Hawaii watching hip hop movies. And now here we are on stage together, kind of, you know, talking yeah. talking about all of that. It was like one of those life moments for me. I was like, okay, like, wow, you know, there's something in that. <laughs> there's a future in that, I think. Absolutely. So. There's absolutely a future in that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. That's very cool. <laughs> Uh, he just dropped that so casually. Wow. 
<laughs> what a cool story. I've been really lucky and blessed in my life for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Truly. It's been a blast. I've had such a good time talking with you. Me too. Go ahead and tell the good folks where to find you, what you have in the works. Sure. When's the Bruce Lee book coming out? Because talking to you, I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot <laughs> wait to read this. I got to go write it right now. Actually, okay. I really do. I have to get it done this year so it can come out next year, a year of the dragon. Okay. Folks can get me on Instagram or on Twitter at Zentronics, Z-E-N-T-R-O-N-I-X. And my website is jeffchang.net. And thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this as well, Delia. This oh, has been thank awesome. You. Yeah. I'm glad it was fun for you. I just knew I was like, he's done so much. I'm not going to be able to cover everything I want to cover, but I think we did it. I think we well, did you know, a good job. Because I'm so old, that's why. <laughs> There's just so much story there. There was no way we were going to get to it. Uh, my final apologies to our guest for her accidentally maybe calling him old a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> truth is truth. <laughs> all right, everyone. Well, thank you all for listening. I would like to know if there are any Asian hip hop artists you're into these days. You know, it's a new new era. I definitely am not with it when it comes to the hip, cool kids, what they're listening to personally. <laughs> so if y'all have anyone, let us know. You can do that at Culture X Podcast on Twitter a little bit. Not really that much anymore, to be honest. Or Instagram. Definitely Instagram. And until next time, keep it chill and keep it nerdy. Thank you.